Welcome to Old Law, New Law, a podcast by the Victorian Law Reform Commission. I'm Nick Gant, and today I'm talking to the Honourable Tony North, the Chair of the VLRC, about the Commission's Contempt of Court report. Now, the VLRC has just published its report on Contempt of Court, which was tabled in Parliament in August. And that report, Contempt of Court, is available on the VLRC's website. The VLRC has made a number of significant recommendations, and we're going to be talking about that today. Good afternoon, Tony. Afternoon, Nick. What is the importance of this report? This is the first time the law of contempt has been investigated by the Law Reform Commission in Victoria. It's the first time it's been scrutinised to see whether it's fit for purpose. What does contempt of court mean? The law of contempt of court is really fundamental to the operation of the legal system. It's the law about how courts can control conduct that interferes with its ability to administer justice. For instance, common example would be if people in the courtroom were disruptive, be they witnesses or be they people observing. The court has to have the power to ensure that the proceedings will be conducted efficiently and without interruption. Another example might be where a witness refuses to answer questions. That would be conduct which would completely undermine the ability of the court to administer justice. Another major example would be where publishers, mainly media, publish information which is not heard in the court. So that juries who are required to determine the guilt or innocence of an accused person by reference only to what they hear in court would be completely undermined. These laws have been around for many hundreds of years, but they've been part of the common law. Um, There have been decisions made by courts. Now, the VLRC is recommending that instead there should be an act of parliament. So what's the problem with the current situation? The law of contempt of court has grown up from decisions of judges. It's not written down in any one place. It can be found in all the various cases that judges have considered about events which have happened in court where they've decided, well, does this uh, interfere with the ability of the court to administer justice or not? And so the result is that the law is hard to access. People who need to know about their conduct, particularly, say, the media, they want to know what are the circumstances in which we can report and which are those in which we can't, then, you know, there are no categories. There are just instances of conduct which has attracted the attention of the judges and they've had to decide one way or another whether it falls within or outside the conduct which is prohibited. And that's really very unsatisfactory because unless you know specifically what conduct you can engage in what you can't, then you're exposing yourself to in some instances, criminal liability. Anybody looking at the history of contempt of court is struck by how old-fashioned some of it seems. The language used in this area of the law is really archaic. I mean, there's one category of contempt, which is called scandalising the court. Now, I doubt that anyone today would really know what that means. Another problem with the law of contempt 
today is that it grew up in a time when public communication was through newspapers and the era of online publishing has created all manner of new problems. There's material that can be published overseas beyond the jurisdiction of the court, but beamed into Australia and, and capable of prejudicing a trial here, which would not be caught by the law as it currently is. Okay, so some of the language may be a bit old-fashioned, but after all these years, surely the law has figured out a procedure that is consistent and clear? The procedure for bringing cases under the law of contempt of court is quite ill-defined. If the proceeding creates an offence and is criminal in nature, do the laws that relate to sentencing apply? Do the laws that relate to bail apply? These questions have arisen in cases and they need to be answered clearly, coherently in one place. So what has the VLRC recommended in order to fix some of these issues that you've addressed? Could you give us a, a brief overview of the main recommendations? The, the critical recommendation is to place the law of contempt in an act of parliament. So that immediately means that people know where to go. If there's a problem about contempt, if you want to know whether the behaviour that you're thinking of being involved in, be it publishing a newspaper or a blog or something else online, if you want to know whether that is going to be a contempt of court or not, you can go to one place. In that Act of Parliament, we will specify what conduct amounts to contempt of court. So the conduct will be defined. The proposed act will also set out the process or procedure by which people can be prosecuted. The act will also establish the maximum penalties and it will use new language, modern language, which communicates more what the uh, subject contempt of court is about. Now, one of the things that the VLRC is saying this act should include is uh, defining the main categories of contempt of court. The first one um, that we'll talk about is contempt by conduct that interferes with a court proceeding. First thing I suppose to notice about this category is that its name tells you what it's about. The old name for this category was contempt in the face of the court. And that was because it was limited to, to conduct which was seen by the judicial officer. The sort of conduct that we're talking about here is, is conduct which disrupts a proceeding or where a person abuses or obstructs or threatens another person or disobeys an order made by the judicial officer, even making an unauthorised recording of a proceeding by taking photos or filming or other recording, engaging in insulting behaviour. But any conduct which undermines or interferes with the conduct of the proceeding, which would be covered in this category. There was a case, wasn't there, where someone was charged with this, with contempt in the face of the court for blowing a bubblegum bubble? Is that the kind of conduct that would still be included, do you think? Well, in that case, even under the old system, on appeal, the case was found not to have been established. So I doubt that it would be because what needs to be required under the proposed category is that the conduct actually interferes with the proceeding. Not that it just has a, a tendency, but there is an actual interference. And a better example might be, for instance, a witness failing to answer a question when required to do so. That would undermine the process of 
the law. So another category that the VLRC has uh, recommended is a ca- is called contempt by non-compliance with a court order or undertaking. So what would that consist of and what, what might an example of conduct be under that category? Uh, well, it's exactly as it says. Where there exists a court order and a person fails to do what the court order requires, in the old days that was called disobedience contempt, but uh, it's probably better described as non-compliance. You don't have to show in this area, in the, uh, with this subject of contempt, that it interfered with the administration of justice, because it obviously does so. There was a lot of confusion in the past about whether this type of contempt was a criminal offence or whether it was just a civil wrong. So it was said that where this type of contempt was being used to punish a person for not complying, it was criminal in nature but where it was seeking to vindicate a person's civil judgment, that is a judgment for money, one person against another, the proceeding was essentially civil. Now, the line between what was criminal and civil was very difficult to detect. And the High Court ultimately said, well, because at the end of the day, a person who fails to comply is punished, it should be seen as a criminal matter. So that what we've recommended is that that distinction be abolished. And what would the penalty be for people who do not comply? For an individual, there's a maximum jail term of five years. But for a corporation, what we've recommended is that they that a, a judge can order that any benefit that accrues as a result of the non-compliance um, can be ordered re- repaid. And if the benefit is not known, then uh, 10% of the turnover of the corporation can be imposed as a penalty. Um, Now that's intended to address cases like a current one that's uh, presently uh, before the courts in Victoria where um, some developers knocked down a historical hotel, knocked it down in breach of the heritage provisions and the, the court ordered that as a penalty they had to do some sort of reconstruction which they've failed to do and there are proceedings for failing to do the reconstruction work that now give rise to the contempt proceedings. It is, of course, critical that the court have the power to enforce its orders in an effective way. However, it's recognised that the law of contempt is part of a much broader suite of provisions in the law which allow the court to enforce their orders, so that what we've recommended is that um, where other mechanisms are available, they should be used before the contempt power is invoked. Now, another form of contempt which has been the subject of much discussion over the last, um, well, year or so, or even more, is a um, form of contempt that's known as subjudice. Um, so could you explain a bit about what that is and what is the Commission recommending? Yes, well, subjudice, the first thing to say is that it's been renamed in a way which we can understand what it does. So it's called now contempt by publishing material prejudicial to legal proceedings. And it's really part of the law concerned with criminal trials, uh, mainly, not exclusively, um, which are determined by juries. And this part of the law is designed to protect the right of the accused to a fair trial by preventing um, prejudicial material which might improperly influence them in the sense of not being part of the evidence 
in the brought before the court. This, of course, is is a an area of the law which intersects with the role of reporters, media, publishers, and what we've sought to do is to recognise that there is a greater emphasis on freedom of expression than there was perhaps in the past. So we recommend that there be a defence allowed for this area of the law, which would allow people to publish where they take reasonable care not to prejudice a fair hearing in in what they publish. So there would be a defence of reasonable care. There would also be a sort of public interest defence, which exists at the moment, but is ill-defined. And we would recommend that it be defined in a way which better balances against the risk to the fair trial, against um, other matters of public interest. So that the example we give is that where a um, person is at large and and a danger to public safety, it might be be legitimate to publicise the details of that person and why he is dangerous, even though once that information is let out, it would be available to a jury and potentially prejudicial, but it might be important for society to know in order to protect itself. Mm. It's very hard these days to build a wall around a jury and stop them from seeing and hearing things that they shouldn't. Are there other things that the VLRC has recommended to protect juries? We've suggested alternatives which might make this area less critical. So the prohibition might become less critical because we would suggest and recommend that jurors be given more information about their role so that they protect themselves through knowing why it is important not to be influenced by anything other than what's in the evidence. That can be done by allowing them a greater ability than now to provide questions to the judge in writing through the foreperson. And another way of countering prejudice to the accused would be to allow judges to administer questionnaires about jurors' outlooks and positions and even to question them about their, their biases. So we recommend that the law of contempt be not the only way of, of protecting them. And this is an area of law, isn't it, where there can be considerable disagreement about whether something is contempt or not. Would you say that that's fair? It's, it can be difficult for people to know just what counts as being contemptuous. We address that by a couple of mechanisms. We, we think the law should require that there be a substantial risk of prejudicing a fair hearing. Now, that is in contrast to the old law, which only required a tendency to affect the administration of justice. So it has to be pretty serious. It's got to be pretty serious. And also what we recommend is that the factors which a court should consider should be set out in the Act. You've talked about the fact that the VLRC wants to modernise this law and remove some of the archaic language. Well, one of the most um, spectacular examples of archaic language is the term scandalising the court. We recommend that it be renamed as contempt by publishing material undermining confidence in the courts or the judiciary. And it occurs where a person publishes material which impairs public confidence in the courts or judges. For instance, saying a judge is corrupt 
or as occurred in the UK when the Court of Appeal determined that the proper trigger for exiting Brexit uh, was Parliament and not the Prime Minister. And the three judges who decided that matter were photographed on the front of the tabloids with a huge banner heading say, saying enemies of the people. Now that here, I would imagine, would fall within the recommended new um, contempt category because it would certainly undermine the public confidence in the judiciary as an institution. And what we have to do here is is disentangle the insult to a judge, an individual who might not like it, from comments which undermine the authority uh, of an institution. We recommend that the old category not only be renamed, but be contracted considerably. What, what we say is that a statement of opinion cannot be this type of contempt, that truth is a defence, a matter which is not clear of common law. And yes, under the old law, there was a defence of fair comment, but it was not clear whether a statement of opinion could amount to that defence. We, we would recommend that a statement of opinion not be actionable. So people should have the right to express an opinion about the courts um, as long as um, they, they do not pose, these comments do not pose a serious risk to the integrity and authority of the court. Exactly right. The risk must be a serious one. The laws of contempt of court have been around for hundreds of years, but the online era poses particular challenges, doesn't it? What do you see the challenges of being? That's true, Nick. Of course, in the online era, you've got the problem of enforcing the rules about contempt of court because publishers can publish anywhere in the world. And the question arises how a court in Victoria can prevent the harm come, coming from these publications. That's a new problem. Allied to that problem is what sort of liability should be attracted by intermediaries or um, public website owners who publish material at one point when it's not restricted, the material is archived and sits there. Do they become liable uh, for criminal sanction at a later point when that material, if accessed, would be prejudicial to the conduct of a criminal trial? There's obviously some real unfairness about a, an intermediary, uh, a Facebook or a Google, which is is housing material produced by others when the, the host does not know of the existence of the court case or of the propensity of the material to be in contempt of court. But this uh, problem isn't limited to contempt, is it? Um, the online era has posed challenges in other areas of law too? Yes, well, that's so. Um, it's, it'll be immediately obvious that uh, the same problem applies in defamation law, for instance, and in copyright law. Um, we just have a much larger world and we have local courts, courts with local jurisdiction, that face limitations on where their writ runs. Uh, it's a problem which is being looked at 
widely. Obviously, at the end of the day, it will probably call for international cooperation to arrange regimes where there'll be an easy way of if you like, interoperability between legal systems. It doesn't exist at the moment. Given that at the moment we don't have a lot of international agreements dealing with this problem, what's the VLRC recommending we do in the meantime? I suppose the starting point is that it seems to be wrong to criminalise their intermediary, the Facebook or the Google or the pub owner of a public website, in circumstances where the material was lawful when it was put up, there was no court case going on, for instance, or where the material comes from a third party and the host of the site is either not aware of the restriction or not aware of the material on its site. And so the fairest solution, we thought, was to institute a regime of takedown orders. That is, a system where a court on application can make an order directed to a specific situation and a specific publisher requiring that person to remove from the site the material which is restricted. So what would be the difference between this proposed system of takedown orders and a suppression order? That system differs from the suppression order regime in that the suppression order regime applies to and is directed to suppressing nominated proceedings, whereas takedown orders are directed to a person or corporation requiring that person or corporation to remove the offending material. And so the court makes that order. If the object of the order refuses to comply, the person commits a criminal offence. That imposes criminal liability, in effect, after notice is given. And we thought that a fairer resolution than simply to criminalise the putting up of the uh, material in the first place. Okay, so if a publisher refuses to take down um, that material, then there could be criminal sanctions. What would you say to the suggestion that that's an attack on free speech? Well, that's a really good point, Nick. Protecting free speech is a theme which runs through the report at every stage. Firstly, the grounds upon which a takedown order can be made are strictly to be specified in the proposed legislation. Essentially, a court will not be permitted to make a takedown order if the order is unnecessary or if it would be futile. So if the material has already escaped into the public, then the damage is already done. The point I seek to make is that the power to make a takedown order uh, is constrained. The constraints are contained in the grounds upon which it can be made, and those are set up in order to protect free speech. There's no reasonable basis for suggesting that um, the takedown order regime is an unreasonable restriction on free speech. Indeed, the courts already have the power. It's just that it's a common law power, therefore undefined. And we recommend a definition because we think that assists clarity and accessibility and is just a more certain way of the law being understood. What about the fact that material could easily be published internationally or interstate outside Victoria and Victorian courts would have no jurisdiction over that? What does the VLRC recommend should happen in those situations? Well, this problem gave rise to the debate 
that you'll see in the report where we consider whether there should be in the proposed Contempt of Court Act or the Open Courts Act a provision which says that the Act has an extraterritorial effect. That is that the publisher, even outside Victoria, commits an offence in Victoria by publishing the restricted material. In one sense, an extraterritorial application provision can be said to be meaningless or useless because someone who's overseas not subject to the jurisdiction of the court, and what's the point of having it? In the end, we thought the point essentially is that with such a provision, many responsible publishers will comply by reason of the existence of the of the law, and by reason of the even if only a remote chance of enforcement against them. It's a clear signal that what Victoria intends is that. Wherever there is a publication made that has a linkage with Victoria and has the potential to damage the chances of a fair trial, then it's the intention of the legislature in Victoria that any infringement be punished. In any event, there'd be very few cases in which such extraterritorial provision would apply because there are not many instances in which an overseas publication would be interested in a court case going on in Victoria. That was the Honourable Tony North, Chair of the Victorian Law Reform Commission, talking about the BLRC's report on contempt of court. And you can find that report at the Victorian Law Reform Commission website. Join us again next time for more Old Law, New Law. How long, so how long must I wait? How far will I go?